very, very big welcome uh, to everyone, and especially to uh, Jennifer Silverstone and members of her family. I'm Robin Mansell, and I'm Professor of New Media in the Department of Media and Communications here at the school. Um, tonight, I am uh, very honored to be with you all in celebrating the life and work of Professor Roger Silverstone. Roger Silverstone died at the age of 61 on 16th of July this year. From 1998, he was the first professor of media and communications at the LSE, where he built our department into a global center for research and teaching. Roger influenced our lives in a huge variety of ways. But this evening, our panelists will focus especially on his very recently published book, Media and Morality, on the Rise of the Media Polis. In this book, Roger develops the idea of a media polis. The media polis is described or depicted as a space for social and political dialogue. Roger had a strong commitment to understanding how the media serve as a very important frame for our understanding of distant others and of the moral significance of how we treat others with whom our contact is almost exclusively through the media. For Roger, the global media are, and I quote, at the heart of the moral future of civilization. He said that we must not only talk about distant others and about difference, but that we must also intervene through policy and regulation to ensure that the media polis becomes a space of hospitality, of responsibility, of obligation, and of judgment. This means that issues of media literacy, media justice, and media regulation have to be at the very center stage of today's debates about policy. Roger's commitment to research and debate on the changing character of the media polis is reflected in our creation here at the school of the Roger Silverstone Fund. I'm extremely pleased to announce on behalf of the school that the LSE is making a £100,000 contribution to this fund. We hope that we will attract many scholars and journalists who will continue to, with the dialogue that we will begin again tonight. Before I introduce our panel members, I invite Roger's wife, Jennifer Silverstone, to say a few words. Some months ago, Roger booked this theatre to launch what is now his last book, Media and Morality, a book he felt proud of and a book he wanted to launch and celebrate here along with his colleagues and friends. Now we, myself and William, our youngest son, Elizabeth, our daughter, and her husband, Sean, Daniel, our eldest son, and his partner, Alison, and our extended family and friends are here together mourning him and celebrating the achievements of a loved and modest man. We're grateful to his colleagues and our friends at the LSE for arranging this evening and especially for the generous gift from the school, which will help to establish a fund for a fellowship in Roger's name. This fund will be for a student studying international journalism and society. The student will be studying with Polis, 
a think tank that Roger, along with the University of the Arts, brought into being here at the LSE, an initiative that caught his imagination and his enthusiasm. We're grateful, too, to our friends at the University of Southern California, represented here tonight by Patty Riley. The joint program between the LSE and USC was also close to Roger's heart, and the USC has put into place a separate Roger Silverstone Fellowship, which will fund a second-year global media student. This fellowship will be renewed annually, and the first student will receive their award in the fall of 2007. We also want to thank so many people, students, past and present, and colleagues from around the world for the tributes that have been posted on the website over the last two months. They have enabled us as a family to see more clearly just how many lives Roger's life touched. We trust that Roger's name will live on in our hearts through his writing, sorry, the legacy of his teaching, and through the work of students, and especially those students who have the good fortune to carry his name. I thank you all. Roger loved more than a good debate and dialogue, um, and I'm very grateful to all of our panelists. I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll be speaking, but I'll do it all at once, and then we can get on with it. Um, first of all, <laughs> Charlie Beckett has worked as a journalist for London Weekend Television, the BBC, and as a program editor for Channel 4 News. This summer, he became the founding director of our new international journalism um, and society think tank, which Jennifer just mentioned, named Polis, which Roger established in, um, jointly with the London College of Communication. Uh, I'd like to welcome um, Professor Danielle Dayan, who is Director of Research at CNRS in Paris and Professor of Media Sociology at the Institut d'Etudes Politiques de Paris. He's held many, many visiting appointments in the U.S. and in Europe and has a particular interest in what I think he calls the pretend publics of television. Welcome. Next, we have Lily Shuliaraki, who is research professor at Copenhagen Business School. Welcome. She specializes in the study of the media, journalism, and globalization, um, as well as national identity. Her concerns are with how we relate to television images of the distant sufferer and the ethical role of the media. Professor Stan Cohen is Professor Emeritus in the Sociology Department here at the school. He has written on issues of social control, criminology, the media, and human rights, and much more, if you don't mind me foreshortening. <laughs> um, he is especially interested in our capacity for denial of atrocities and suffering and the public's reaction to media images. And lastly, Richard Sambrook has been director of BBC News and is currently director of the BBC's Global News Division, which contains the World Service Radio, World Television, and BBC Monitoring, as well as its international online news services. And given that, we're very grateful to you for coming across the road. Thank you. Um, with those introductions, I'd like to call upon Charlie. Each panelist will speak for about eight minutes. We hope to leave room for discussion at the end. 
and um, comments and questions. Thank you. Charlie. Uh, good evening, everyone. Thanks very much, Robin. Um, I'm really honoured to open the contributions tonight. And I'm also relieved because, with a bit of luck, I can steal some of Roger's best lines before the others. Um, as Robin said, uh, six months ago, I was a program editor at Channel 4 News. Um, it's been a very exciting change, but it's still a big leap from the newsroom to the lecture hall. Uh, it was Roger who made that transition seem logical and right. Uh, before I took this job, I spent uh, two hours talking through the potential of the post, uh, with Roger, or rather we spent two hours talking about the fascinating world of uh, global media and international politics. Uh, and Roger told me his favourite story, which is also at the front of the book, about the Afghani blacksmith who was interviewed on the BBC World Service at the height of the previous uh, Afghan war. Uh, when asked by a reporter why the Americans were bombing his country, he told the world that in his opinion, Quote, Al-Qaeda must have killed many Americans and their donkeys and destroyed their castles. Obviously, he was a perceptive political commentator who no doubt already has his own blog. Um, Roger's point was that we need to hear this other voice if we are to understand our world. Well, for me, you can replace that tribesman with a youth, say, on a Manchester housing estate or an illegal immigrant who cleans buildings perhaps like this or even a Bush-supporting evangelical Christian from Kansas. Um, they're all connected, they're all significant, and they all have a bearing upon the ideologies and the facts that are going to make up the real stories of this 21st century. But how to connect, and how to represent them, and how to hear what they say? Well, this is what Roger says in the book. Our relation to the other, to the stranger, is the principal determinant of our moral worth, and our status as human beings. Our media provide the most pervasive and persuasive perceptual frameworks in an increasingly global society for the way in which meanings, representations, and relationships to the other are offered and defined. Now, I share Roger's sense that the media, and for me especially the news media, has that role. And one of Roger's many insights was that the conversation between the media and society shouldn't be simply bilateral negotiations. So the polis discourse is very much centred on a moral core. I believe that journalism matters and that it's possible to identify and foster what I call good journalism. But good journalism is a creation of society as much as the individual journalist or media organisation. And this is, again, how Roger puts it. He writes, communication of any kind is, of course, impossible without a commitment to truthfulness. Truthfulness in the Mediapolis is therefore a matter both for institutions and their regulation and a matter for the individual who speaks and has to take responsibility for his or her words. But it's also a matter of interrogation and critique. The reflexivity of the professional and the critical skills of the readers and listeners, those who might or might not be or become one day society's citizens. And at one level, I think what Roger is arguing for here is greater media literacy. And I suppose you couldn't really expect anything less of someone who's the convener of a media and communications department. Um, but I do share his view. So how do you get to this cosmopolitan Mediapolis? Well, here are some guiding principles of my own. First, you have to understand that the future of news is utterly in doubt. 
I think that demand for news information is growing, but also that all of the people who currently provide it are in one kind of crisis or another. If you talk to editorial leaders, and you've got one at the other end of the podium, the most honest of them will admit that they have a gut feeling that they're effectively about to walk around the corner of media history, and they're not quite sure what they're going to walk into. And that's not ten years off, it's not five years off, it's happening right now. Newspaper sales are collapsing, advertising revenue is deserting the mainstream, the blogs are blossoming, the platform technologies are proliferating like digital mushrooms, and user-generated content sweeps in on a tide of interactivity. It's all very confusing, and it puts at risk the current system for delivering journalism. So I think we are at a unique moment for journalism. Some people choose this moment to despair of us ever recapturing some golden age when the nation huddled around the nine o'clock news in families or they devoured lengthy times editorials before nipping off to work. Well, I reject that myth. I think we can argue that we have more good journalism now than ever before. Others point out that the digital revolution could leave the palaces of good journalism in ruins. All journalists are going to become multi-skilled sausage makers. All truth becomes relative to the ravings of the blogosphere. I also reject that counsel of despair. I see radical change ahead, but there's no reason why it shouldn't be for the better. The opportunities offered by new technologies at this historic moment are extraordinary. Thanks to the mobile phone, to the internet, digitalization, and all the other new technologies, even the humblest hack on a local newspaper has more potential powers of information gathering and transmission than the BBC newsroom might have had a decade ago. And of course the decisions we make about public service, broadcasting, regulation and so on will have a lot to do with making the technology work for good journalism. And internationally there has to be a political revolution in many parts of the world before people can truly deliver or receive that potential explosion of journalism. So not much to ask, really. Um, but I do think that whatever the challenges to journalism in the near future, the demand is there, and the ability to deliver it efficiently and imaginatively has never been greater. But here's another paradigm that I think you have to factor in again, which um, I think uh, will offer the potential, at least, for journalism to live up to the ambitions that Roger sets out in his book. By its very nature, the new technologies are going to force journalists to be more networked. They're going to have to be much more diverse. They're going to have to offer greater variety. And they're going to have to add much greater value to their reporting. The consumer is going to become part of the storytelling. And the storytelling itself is going to become a process as much as a product. Instead of being handed down from on high, news will be society talking to itself about the factual information that's in the public domain. Now, there are all sorts of things that sustain good journalism, but in this increasingly complex communications world, we're all going to have to become much more reflexive and reflective about the news media. Much of this will be instinctive, drawn from our lived experience and our attitudes and our ideologies. But for a healthy Mediapolis, I think that in the future, the journalist and the citizen will have to be much more informed, equipped and thoughtful about their news media. And this is um, how Roger describes that uh, media centrism. The pursuit of political life, 
the management or mismanagement of markets, the conduct of diplomacy and the fighting of wars, as well as the construction of lifestyles and the capacity to get through the day, significant each in their own terms and perfectly capable in principle once upon a time of being conducted in exclusively unmediated or private contexts, are no longer free to do so. If this is media centrism, then so be it. And with that media centrism, I believe, comes media literacy. And for media literacy, we need more spaces for thinking, teaching, debate and research. Again, Roger puts it very well. He writes, there has to be a way to consider the issues, to till the ground perhaps, so that it becomes more fertile and so that the seeds of political action and professional judgment have greater likelihood of germinating. Now, I, I, I know that the uh, media and communications department that Roger was part of here at the LSE and my partners at the London College of Communication have been tilling that ground for some time now. Uh, my personal hope is that Polis and the fellowship set up in Roger's name will be fertile seedbeds as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Charlie. Every time I hear about the new possibilities of technology, I think, wow, and then my critical brain jumps in and I think, hmm, I wonder if it's really going to turn out well. Yeah. And I think that's what Roger was asking as well. Um, Danielle, please. Thank you. I, I'm a French speaker, which means first I have an accent, and second I need my hands. So uh, uh, I think that uh, I think that I was struck by somehow not only the power but the violence of the book of Roger. I think it's a very violent book, a very disturbing book, because it's a book of a prophet, and I think that Roger almost adopted a certain posture which is the posture of the prophets of Israel. They came, they warned you, they almost threatened you. And uh, I think that Roger, in his book, keeps threatening us. What he requires is simply impossible. He requires too much. At the same time, he tells us, I have to require it because we have, we have no other cosmos at our disposal. Either we manage with this one, nobody will keep us some, some other cosmos in the fridge ready to deliver it if we spoil this one. So I think that it is a very urgent book. And the first thing that struck me was its tone of urgency, a tone of urgency which uh, uh, somehow doesn't fit entirely with the image I had of Roger as a very gentle and a very subtle man. And behind the gentleness and the subtle, subtlety, I find somebody very strong and very determined. And I think that what is very uh, somehow strong about this message is not only its um, you know, contained violence, but that it comes to us from the other side of life. Okay, so it gives it even more importance. Uh, even though I should have been sad in this circumstance, uh, reading this book curiously energized me. It was exciting. It was uh, the sort of uh, challenge of having all these intellectual horizons being open to me. And I think that one of the best ways to respond to such challenges is to challenge the book from which they come. So I'll try also respectfully and with admiration to dare challenging the prophet. 
I think that uh, what uh, I won't do it very often because I'm much, there's so much I admire that I first have to express my admiration for the book. But I think that it is very interesting that uh, at one point I had a debate with French journalists accusing them of being only human. And they said, yes, okay, we are only human. And I found that Roger shared my notion that journalists in a way should be more than human. They have too much responsibility to be simply human. They have to be priests. They have to be, in a way, superhuman. And I think that uh, when I did this challenge, one of my uh, French counterparts, one of the French journalists I talked to, told me, oh, yes, you are crazy. You want to be the pope of the media. And I think that it was clearly hubris on my part. And I think that what is very interesting is that Roger has that particular hubris. It is a calculated hubris. He has hubris, and he does it on purpose, and he knows very well it is hubris. And I think that, in a way, his proposal of creating some sort of a Kyoto agreement for uh, the universal media, it is a crazy proposal, but it will happen. And when it will happen, we'll remember Roger Silverstone as being to this agreement what Jean Monnet, another crazy man, was to the creation of Europe. Okay? I think that uh, I want to, to say how much I admire this work, but now I would like to perhaps look a little bit at the thrust of the book. The book is about media and morality, but it does not deal with all sorts of morality. I think, for example, Roger has written a lot about trust, so we don't find much about trust in this book. We don't find much about truth or truthfulness. He discusses it, but en passant. It is not really that which he is after. There's not a lot about justice. There's a discussion of roles, but the discussion is relatively short. There's uh, also a discussion of Michael Walzer's minimalist view of multiculturalism, but this uh, discussion is also some, somehow present because it has to be present. But this is not what Roger is about. And I think that uh, his project is really around one major notion. This notion is responsibility. And this notion of responsibility is the very basic uh, uh, how do you say, element of the ethics he proposes. And not even of the ethics, because he warns us in the beginning, let me not speak of ethics because ethics is too applied. Let me speak of moral first. And then perhaps at some point I'll get down from moral into ethics. And perhaps at some point some people will get down from ethics to deontology. And perhaps at some point we'll get down from moral to ethics to deontology to earth. Okay? And I think that the problem of translation is a very difficult problem. For example, the whole book of uh, Roger is centered around the reference to Hannah Arendt and to Hannah Arendt's notion of imagination and a notion he derives from Hannah Arendt, which is the notion of proper distance. But it's very interesting that I, was, um, I attended a trial a few months ago in Paris, and this trial opposed two disciples of Hannah Arendt. One was a philosopher, Alain Finkelkraut, the other was the director, uh, Eyal Sivan, and both were somehow applying Hannah Arendt. Both were claiming they were applying Hannah Arendt. Both were bringing Hannah Arendt to earth, but not in the same way. 
and the notion of distance, the notion of proper distance, had an immensely different meaning in the case of one and in the case of the other. And I think that this is why, to me, it is quite important almost to, uh, do, to be like a shadow of Roger and to walk step by step after him, trying to reconstruct his gestures and to find what is the logics of his gestures. And I think that if I look at these logics, I remark that, for example, he stresses very much at one point the work of, uh, uh, I suppose, philosopher, uh, because I'm so ignorant of the field he explores for me, Honora O'Neill, who makes this sort of important distinction between obligations that are perfect because they correspond to rights on the other side and obligations that are imperfect because you are obliged to do something even though the other side has no right, no claim on your obligation. And then I think that it is very interesting that he quotes Jacques Derrida, and when he quotes Jacques Derrida, I think that there's sort of very strong affinity, I feel, between Roger and Jacques Derrida. It's like, you know, a, a discovery of a soulmate. And when he, calls, uh, when he quotes Jacques Derrida, he quotes hospitality, the notion of hospitality, and he says there are two sorts of hospitality. Now it is Derrida speaking. You have conditional hospitality, hospitality upon invitation, and you have unconditional hospitality, you welcome whoever comes without, with or without invitation. You have this inconditionality of hospitality, and when Roger speaks of Derrida, it is very clear that it is the unconditional hospitality that seduces him, and not at all the conditional hospitality, and even pushes Derrida beyond what Derrida wants to say, because he speaks of the visitation hospitality as opposed to the invitation hospitality and then he proposes terrorism as an example of the visitation hospitality it seems to me that terrorism is not exactly visitation I would call it effraction hospitality but I think that this is very strongly at the heart of Roger thinking this stressing the lack of reciprocity the ethics he proposes is an ethics that does not calculate and that refuses to calculate and that rejects altogether reciprocity. It is an ethics of unconditionality. And I think that ethics then uh, reaches its most uh, striking dimension when he makes a reference to uh, the philosopher Hans Jonas and his book, The Principle of Responsibility. I'm almost finished. Uh, I think that when he refers to Hans Jonas, he uh, somehow follows Jonas into making this distinction between substantive responsibility and formal responsibility. Formal responsibility would be my intuitive notion of what responsibility means. Formal responsibility means I'm responsible for what I do. I am not responsible for, for what you do. And even less responsible for what, for what you do if you are my enemy. Okay? But Hans Jonas says, no, I am responsible for what I do, and I'm also responsible for what you do, and I'm even more responsible if you're my enemy. Okay? This is a, father, a father's sort of responsibility. Or I would say it is a God's sort of responsibility. What bothers me, 
and what I react to, uh, I think that I'm resisting uh, the, the very imperious voice of Roger Silverstone is that I do not think that I am ready to accept God's position. I am not ready to accept this type of uh, substantive responsibility. And I think that, uh, in my view, in a way, he's asking too much. I mean, I'm not a journalist. I am only human. <laughs> The lead from Daniel, I would like to start off by saying that I won't be critical or critical in the same way of Roger's work as he has just been, because I think that where he sees gaps and contradictions, I see dialectical thinking, a dialectic without guarantees, without teleology, but kind of thinking, a quality of thinking in Roger's work, particularly in, in media and morality, that grasps the realities of media polis in their creative tensions rather than in kind of sterile contradictions. And what I wanted to do today at his absence was to, to read his story and uh, retell it to you, to us, so that we will be able to, to discuss it. So, Median Morality is Roger's only book that explicitly talks about media and ethics, but it is not the only one that addresses that relationship. There is, in fact, a red thread that runs through his media in everyday life um, and why study the media then culminates in media and morality. And this red thread is about Roger's search for the meaning of humanity, our humanity and that of others who are not like us. Now, this is a search of meaning, both in the hermeneutic sense, in the sense of what is it to be human in the multiple contexts of mediation, but also uh, it is a search for meaning in a more philosophical terms. What does it mean to be human when we are confronted with media that fill our life with sense, a sense of insecurity and threat? Or what happens to our humanity when the media bring close to us places and people that we would otherwise never have met? And as a master of dialectical thinking and with an acute sense of historical timeliness, Roger manages throughout this work to move from a concern of the polis, the space of safe viewing in Western communities of audiences, his concern in that media and everyday life, to the media polis, the global space where hierarchies of human play, of place and human life sharply divide the world between those who watch in safety and those who suffer in poverty or war. And it is indeed in Media and Morality, Roger's uh, latest and last book, that explicitly and boldly interrogates the role of the media in this global terrain of asymmetrical relations and assesses the potential of this global terrain to act as a polis, as a moral space for our collective deliberation and action, what he calls the media polis. 
in his distinctly dialectical way, Roger conceives of media polis in its multiple um, dualities and, as I said, creative tensions. And here is one. The media polis is, of course, about particulars. It is about the sphere of conduct. It is about codes of journalistic practice, regulation, accountability, and above all, about media literacy, about us learning to read and understand our media better. All these are necessary dimensions of a renewed media ethics in a world of global visibility and unprecedented mediations of information and interactions. But, Roger simultaneously adds, the media polis is also about universals. It is about the sphere of theory and judgment that guides our principles of conduct. And media and morality is primarily about this. It is about the media polis as a space of representation and action that provides the conditions of possibility for our engagement with the world and with its people. Those nearby and those far away, geographically, culturally, morally. So Roger's concern in media and morality is with how we can live together under conditions of global connectivity, but also cultural difference and conflict. Two questions. How do we handle the right to have a voice, the principle of freedom of speech, in societies threatened by hate talk and terror? In other words, how can we be just when being just may threaten the very virtue of justice? His second main question. How are we expected to respond to distant suffering when there is so much of it out there and so little to do? Again, in other words, how can we care when care seems impossible. Roger approaches these tormenting questions not as static impossibilities or as unresolvable paradoxes uh, forever haunting the imaginary of, of Western publics, but as historical challenges, the challenges of today, that demand of us a different discourse about the very publicness of our public life and a different set of moral dispositions or ways of relating to far away others. Roger's key word here is hospitality, a term, as you know, that he recovers from the philosophical discourse of Emmanuel Levinas and the political philosophy of Hannah Arendt. Hospitality in this discourse dictates that the right to receive the other and to respond to the other is prior to any other act of sociality and the founding moment of human beings as moral subjects. So speaking firmly and self-consciously from the privileged perspective of the West, Roger identifies two imperatives that follow from the hospitable morality of the media polis, the ethics of obligation and the ethics of care. And it is with these two notions of ethics that I will round off my talk. First, the ethics of obligation. The media today are primarily concerned with the right to freedom to speak insofar as this freedom does not violate other people's rights. This, Roger argues, is of course important, but it is not enough anymore. Under conditions of conflicting rights and indeed conflicting values, the right to speak may enable the voicing of an opinion, but it does not foster 
the conditions, the broader conditions for meaningful communication. Rights, he proposes, should be complemented by a framework of obligations, of a concern not only with expressing ourselves, but with understanding, acknowledging and respecting the context and circumstances within which specific communications can be established and can be sustained. The ethics of care. Our media are a mirror of ourselves. In a culture of narcissistic intimacy, they are intensely preoccupied with our own interiorities. Our national stories and domestic news, our homes and clothes, our relationships, children and feelings. But when it comes to portraying those who do not live in the zones of our safety and our prosperity, our media fail. They fail to ground those people with their own humanity. Either they push those distant others beyond the, the order of humanness as we know it, or they bring them too close to us to allow for their difference. In order to care, however, we must begin by breaking this circle of representation. We must begin by placing the others neither too close nor too far, by recognizing these others as others with humanity. The ethics of care in the media police is predicated primarily on the politics of proper distance. This is then what media and morality is about. An account of media police, the only public life that we have as it is now, asymmetrical, dysfunctional, flawed. And simultaneously, an account of the media police as it could and should be, a hospitable, caring and just space for all. Moving from what there is to what could be is a difficult task. But without the conceptual language to talk about Mediapolis, this task would be immensely more difficult. And it is then precisely this conceptualization of Mediapolis as a moral space of public word and deed and the vocabulary to talk about the dilemmas of the Mediapolis today that make, I believe, media and morality a groundbreaking book unique in its argument and invaluable in its contribution to the study of the media and our culture. And it is this passionate, caring engagement with the goods and evils of media police, with the very question of humanity, that is, I believe, Roger's legacy to us, a present that he has been developing with us and for us, and that in his favorite play, dialectical play of presences and absences, he has now left to us to continue. Median morality is in Roger's final dialectic act. Just this, his continuing worldly presence in absentia. Thank you. The last time I spoke to Roger was after a seminar I gave in a series that the Media Institute ran here about the problem of the distant other and how media represent the, the other from, from a distance. And after I, I finished, Roger came up to me in his usual courteous, kind way and said that he liked what I said and it was very close to what he was thinking and, and he was sorry that both of us for various reasons, have, have not been able to discuss those issues over the previous few months. 
And indeed, when I got to, to reading the first chapter of the book, I, I saw how uncannily close our, our, our interests were. Um, Roger uses, uh, Charlie mentions it, the iconic picture of the Afghan, uh, the, the Afghan blacksmith as a symbol, how his presence in the mediated space of, of somebody's own house, and, and not just a passive presence, but a presence of someone who could actually talk back and answer the media. Roger talked about how that iconic presence, what, what problems it posed for us. And, and he correctly, I think, argued that, that it carried all sorts of moral demands and that the way we depict this picture is, is in, in a, a Durkheimian sense, a depiction of our whole society. And all of us have, have favorite iconic pictures. Mine for years has been a Palestinian or a Kurdish or a Turk, an Iraqi woman crying as her house, as she's watching the rubble of her house being destroyed. Other people have got the, the iconic picture of the starving African child with or without Madonna. And, and these pictures, I think, correctly are there to haunt us because they, they, they do represent, as Roger said, uh, a site for constructing the new world order where questions of tolerance, inclusion, hospitality uh, are, are really represented and how the distant others are represented is indicative of our own relationships. We only had to see that when we watched the, the, the Hurricane Katrina effect on, on, on New Orleans when we saw what it was like to watch on television the prison, prisoners who were just left to their own fate, those others indeed represented a, a model of what the world order might look like. Now, the particular question I want to ask myself this evening uh, is why should the fact that suffering is mediated and represented be a problem? Why is there such a new moral problem posed by the fact of representation? And what sort of problem is it? Well, the problem is, goes something like this, that on one hand, there's the thing itself, pain, cruelty, injustice, suffering, atrocities, and this becomes, on the other hand, represented, mediated, framed, constructed, commodified. It becomes a spectacle, and the critique that's developed is what happens in this transition? What effect does this transition have? I'm just going to run through, in a sort of caricatured way, four or five positions which try to account or try to make sense of the gap that, that is alleged to, to be occurring between the thing and the represented thing and why this causes any new moral problems. I think the first and most general critique is what you could call the notion of reality loss. Um, the general line is that Media messages do not provide a proper account of the real substance and meaning of human suffering, and the public are able to ignore their moral responsibility to address the plight of the victim. Further, the appropriation of images of suffering as commercial news entertainment gives rise to a culture of voyeurism that avoids the possibility of audiences responding to the suffering of distant others with compassion or moral outrage, or a sense of social justice. So the thing is somehow something less. 
Now, I don't, I don't for this audience have to go through the reasons why this is the case and how, how this is possible, uh, but somehow we, we understand what the critique means, what, what people see and what they know. Um, what we make of this critique, though, depends very much on, a, on the kind of, well, philosophical problems that Roger does talk about, but perhaps more, more, more simply, it depends on the worldview we have about what is going on when we see these representations. One of the most straightforward positions would be simply to say that this re reality loss is intentional. The powerful don't want us to know the realities of social suffering, and still less, they don't want us to know this, their political responsibilities. So therefore, the denials, the cover-ups, the loss, and the loss is something caused by manipulation by propaganda, by control, by deceit. So that the same forces that don't want to know what can be done present a view that nothing can be done. So the audience in this particular view are gullible zombies who are falsely conscious, who are taken in. Now what do we make of that? Let's assume that that is a view that we, we hold and and in many cases it's not that far from the truth. Uh, but what do we make of that? Well, the one, the one is, is the kind of pessimism that people have spoken about and Roger refers to. It's a view that says, well, that's the way it is. You know, the, the powerful have always done that and will continue doing that. And that's the way it is and we must make our, criti our, criti our criticism as powerful as ever, make the world look as miserable as ever. Uh, it's what the late David Widgery once nicely referred to as radical impossibilism. The second possibility is outlined, I think, uniquely by Chomsky, uh, who says that, yes, that's the way it is, but something can indeed be done. And in a striking metaphor, Chomsky talks about the possibility of people being able to grasp that gap, being able to do something about it, by simply seeing it in the way that they would see football news or baseball news, that the kind of complexity that they can give to, to analyzing the gap between reality and representation when they're watching a, an idiotic account of a football match in which the, the interpretation is patently wrong because Chelsea obviously was better and so on and so on. Why, why can't they give the, the same discrimination to foreign news? I think there's more than meets the eye in Chomsky's position. Another position which has muddied things a little bit in the last few years is a kind of ironical postmodernist position on that gap, which is that this reality loss, this uh, slippage, just happened, and the audience don't notice it, or else they notice it but they don't particularly care, or they notice it but they embrace it and seek it out, or they spend their time commenting ironically on it. In any event, it's not something to be taken seriously. And this does muddy the waters because some very important intellectuals have spent a lot of time trying to get a lot of mileage out of this position. Um, I think what one can find, what, what is left out of all these positions is the notion of, of a decontextualized picture and what that does for morality. Because the gulf between the, the audience and the, uh, and the distant other on the screen is this, that the spectator is situated in a clear set of social and cultural relationships 
but the suffering of the other is lifted out of social context that might give them any identity or security or, ide or identity. So the refugee standing on his own, the, the child alone in the village, are taken out of a social context, and we who can watch have got the context which they don't have. Another, another side effect of all this is what is called naturalization. And I think it's, a, it's an especially important theme in the representation of disease and misery and atrocity. Uh, it's invariably the case that the subject, refugees, massacres, corruption, is presented as something which is natural, endemic, and unfathomable. And the conventions of reporting fit a morality play in which the crisis arrives suddenly without any warning, like a tsunami. The local services are inadequate. Uh, the brand name humanitarian organizations, the Red Cross, Amnesty, arrive. The Western military eventually wake up, etc., etc. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a, a formal sequence. And the tendency to view events and phenomena as, as, as spectacles uh, show that, try to create them as equivalents of social disasters. Finally, before I come to, to some way out of this, uh, finally, there's the effect of overexposure or habituation or what is called more commonly compassion fatigue. Does the representation of one shocking images of suffering serve to numb and anesthetize both the intellect and the emotions? And do the images eventually lose their moral force? Further, does, does the familiarity so shut down the previous responses that it leads to passive consumption? Now, there's an important critique here, but unfortunately, the debate is shaped rather too much by the banal conception of cons compassion fatigue, which can't really be proved one way or the other. Uh, which is not clear whether it means that people stop noticing or whether they, it means that they stop thinking that anything can be done. And does this simply happen because we really are, it, it really seems implausible to say that it's even analogous to the state of being tired. Do people actually get exhausted and tired about compassion in the way that they do about just going to sleep after a boring lecture? It seems unlikely. More, more correctly, the interesting direction to look at is media fatigue or journalistic compassion fatigue, where journalists themselves double guess what the audience might want. Finally, the, there is an overriding factor which is the most difficult to, to judge here. And this is, I can only think of a rather banal term for it, which would be wrong selection, which is this, which says that Really, the problem is not how, is not what happens with the images that are transmitted. It's not a question of, of reality loss or decontextualization or, 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 or loss of impact. The question is what doesn't get transmitted. And yet, many people who don't agree with the word that Chomsky says always find themselves in agreement with the quotation of his the quotation that he likes very much from Walter Lippmann, who's talking about the formation of public opinion, where Lippmann says, the question is not, the, 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 the critique is not that 
the media make us tell us what to think. It's not that the media tell us what to think. It's what they tell us to think about. It's not what they tell us to think. It's what they tell us to think about. And we have to then think, what, what would we like it? What would we put there instead? What things do go on in the world of suffering, of atrocity, uh, which never get there? That seems to be the problem. And how do we get around it? Well, perhaps some sort of magic, uh, some sort of powerful role that the journalists are just not up to is needed to do that. Is there some rational basis for this? Can, can, can we, like medical epidemiologists, spread out, spot out what is happening and then find the gap and say, look, this, people don't talk about this? Well, obviously, we can't do that because we lack the indicators of rationality, objectively. We, we can't construct some kind of Richter scale of suffering. And we can go out with our Richter models and say, well, look, there, there's the heavy suffering. These, this is the stuff that really should be covered, not these trivial things. Nor, nor is that solved if we bring the values out into the open. Because bringing them out into the open doesn't allow any kind of consensus either. Now, all this has led in recent years to, to a kind of liberal despair that, again, one of the other speakers referred to, that in dismay at the public indifference to these continuing sites, of, of atrocity and suffering and the, the apparent indifference and denial or whatever one wants to call it, a new kind of pessimism has emerged from liberals themselves. It, it's a kind of uh, neoliberal jumping back on their own positions. Uh, as has happened in other areas, crime, welfare, even foreign policy, a neoliberal disenchantment has developed, which says that perhaps all humanitarian aid is misconceived, human rights are, are overdone and, and are overstressing the universal, and, and uh, categories like liberal hawks have become commonplace. Uh, and Roger's book opens important sociological questions, I think, which counteract those. It's not as if it's like a knee-jerk liberal response to try and revive liberal values, but it's rather drawing attention to the fact that it's not the potential of the mass media to exhaust our capacity to feel compassion for others, which is so important, but it's their potential to open our imagination to the predicament of distant others, to the point that we actually accept that we have a moral duty to care for the needs of strangers in different places. This is almost a wondrous thing that has happened. And we can trace the rather distinctive evolution of this terrain, emphasizing the rise of NGOs in the 1950s, the distinctive role of TV journalism in bringing us roles of suffering, the emergence of a genuine universalization of our response to suffering. So in a historical sense, and, and this is where I end, uh, instead of moaning too much as I have and others have, Instead of moaning too much about denial and compassion fatigue, we should remember that it's quite remarkable to assume that media portrayals of suffering demand a response of care and compassion. Uh, it's not so much fatigue and that lack of attention, but paying too much attention and receiving the political message of naturalization. So what's this got to do with representation? 
Why is the question of spectacle so important? Well, it's important because the mediated spectacles of human suffering do indeed encourage a passive role towards the media. And this is a powerful critique. But remember, it's not a critique of mediation and it's not a critique of representation. It's a critique of intentions. It's a critique of method. It's a critique of the end result and it's a critique of consequences. The point is not to argue against the aestheticization of suffering as if the more transformed or more mediatized or the more anesthetized, the more, sorry, the more aestheticized an image is, the less authentic or politically valuable it'll be. There's no way of saying that simply by, by making something more and more aestheticized Therefore, it will be le 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 less likely to, to elicit a, a particular response. Uh, the photography critic David Strauss points out a friend's reaction to, to the crass realism that the only politically correct way of representing human suffering was realism. The friend said, well, what about King Lear? What does that do to, to realism? Anyway, to represent is to transform. Our choices don't include the choice not to transform. What we have to do is, is, is find the democratic way of transforming, uh, find a way which recognizes the fact that much of what has to be done is to include what is excluded. So the moral issue is not how suffering is represented, but how and why most forms of suffering are not represented. And that's why Roger's colleagues and friends and students who are here were lucky to have somebody who understood that although it was media studies, really the important things were happening elsewhere. And this is why also I could say that his, his family were lucky to have somebody who, who was not just a professor of sociology at LSE. Thank Thank you. That, that was fascinating. I might try to pick up one or two, one or two points uh, uh, as I go through briefly. I mean, obviously, I speak from the perspective of a practitioner rather than an analyst or observer, uh, and the perspective is rather different. Um, however, let me start. I, I first met Roger a few years ago when we were both invited to speak to the uh, World Economic Forum in Davos, uh, and we met there and talked and, and made a connection and realized we only worked 50 yards apart from each other on opposite sides of the Aldwych. Uh, and it was a, a, a connection and a discussion which uh, continued and was one that I very, very highly valued uh, and I hope was a friendship as well. But during that first meeting in Davos, um, I made the very uh, stupid error of taking uh, the wrong shoes. Davos is a very icy, cold, snowy place and the streets at night are absolute sheets of ice. And as we set off down the road one evening, I was just uh, uh, talking to Jennifer about this earlier, uh, I found I could, literally could not stand up on the sheet ice. It's absolutely impossible. So Roger propped me up as we walked gingerly through these treacherous conditions and that image of the LSE media professor concerned with the morality of the media propping up the BBC in treacherous conditions <laughs> is one that seems vaguely appropriate this evening, I feel. Um, Roger's ideas about uh, media ethics and the changes currently underway uh, were timely and important when I heard him speak uh, that year and very much chimed with some of my own thoughts at that time and some of the issues that all of us 
uh, involved, particularly in you, still struggle with. And I remember he made uh, three points, memorably and forcibly. Um, the first was that the so-called crisis in journalism uh, actually marks a more fundamental sea change in the role and status of the world's media. It's a converging set of challenges going on, which, as he put it, is more akin to global warming than to a, a tsunami. Something fundamental and long-term is happening rather than a, a short-term crisis. These challenges uh, are numerous, but they include the, certainly the disruptive effect of the Internet. Uh, I am responsible for the BBC World Service, which for 75 years has broadcast programmes around the world with studios and fixed lines and expensive transmitters on Ascension Island and so on. But today, if you've got a laptop and an Internet connection, you can do exactly the same thing for a minimal cost. So where does that leave the BBC and the World Service? What is our role now that anybody can do what we have done through control of the means of production and distribution? Uh, which brings me to the next challenge, the commoditization uh, of information. I mean, the news business was based on uh, limited supply and demand. Only those organizations with the resources to send people out and find out what was happening and some control over distribution, be it newspapers or the airwaves, were able to be in that business. Well, all of that's been swept aside by the Internet. Uh, so, uh, you know, what now is, uh, is the role of the big media organizations? Nobody these days says, you know, I can't find out what happened. They just Google it. Though, interestingly, Google can't provide judgment, and that may point a way forward. There's, of course, because of all of this vastly increased competition and, and accordingly, the need to stand out in that competition, which perhaps in some ways, is, as Roger said, is undermining standards. I mean, it's, it's almost every month now another global channel is launched, Al Jazeera, Telesur, France 24, Russia Today, I could go on and on and on. It's never been more competitive, uh, and that does raise particular pressures within the business. Uh, and, of course, there's huge availability of alternative sources of information as opposed to the mainstream sources of information available on the Internet. Increased media literacy is a factor for which, of course, he was in some part responsible, uh, and that's a very good thing because interpreting agendas is crucial, but it is, in a healthy way, absolutely challenging news executives about the assumptions which have under, underlay their business for uh, many, many years. And all of this and many other factors as well is leading to a loss of trust in institutions and particularly in the media. There is a thinning out of standards as a consequence of some of these factors, uh, or as he put it, a melting of the ice cap of responsible civic journalism. And within the BBC, of course, we had our own crisis of confidence and at least a singular incidence of thinning standards with the Hutton affair. And whatever one's view of that particular episode, within the BBC, it produced a refocusing on core editorial values, on the role of public service broadcasting, and investment uh, in practical terms, £10 million in a college of journalism and in more. So these things are redressable. The second point that uh, Roger made uh, was to point up a central paradox um, uh, that at a time of falling circulation and falling audiences uh, in the media, which in any other industry, in any other business would erode that business, uh, the influence of the media has grown. There's a very interesting paradox. Exactly the circumstances which would undermine another business Parallel with that, the influence of the media has grown. And there are a number of complicated reasons for this. I don't pretend to, to know or understand all of them, and you may know others. Part of it's because barriers to entry have fallen, so there's a lot more of it out there. Uh, and actually, and I don't think in those circumstances we have a way to go that anything need be unreported or unknown anymore. The multiplicity of sources and of people providing information is um, uh, astonishing. In an information-heavy, interdependent, interconnected society, the necessity for mediation rises, so that may be another reason why the power of the media has grown in these circumstances. And, of course, there's the importance that others, particularly politicians, confer upon the media. I mean, is the sun really that influential? 
Uh, we could debate that for a long time, but I suggest we don't go down that avenue just at the moment. I'm sure you can think of many other factors as well behind the current status of the media under those circumstances. However, Roger's point was that whatever the reasons, media consumption is growing and growing as most of the world's dependence upon the media increases consequently. But media responsibility and accountability has not kept pace with that. Uh, it led to what he called a punishing paradox, that increasing dependence on the media in parallel with a decreasing trust. Now, clearly, that's unsustainable. And one of two things, it seems to me, must happen. Either accountability, responsibility, and therefore trust can increase and recover, or that dependence will in some way break. The latter of these currently seems to be happening with the fragmentation of information and influence across the Internet and the kind of crisis of mainstream news organisations and media organisations which has been much observed. In practice, I think we're likely to see both things happen, with a polarisation of media between those who publish and commit to values and are prepared to be held to account against them. Public service broadcasting, of course, I would put in that category, though not alone. Uh, the debate about the BBC Charter and the changes in governance, for example, I think is an example of this shift in accountability to make up for a perceived shortfall. And at the other end, a more aggressive commercialised media, increasingly focused on low common denominators or opinionated news, supplemented perhaps by these fragmented and highly niche sources of information on the net and elsewhere. I do think as part of this, there's another crisis of uh, authenticity. Um, Stan referred to the reality loss. And I do think one of the things that all news organisations in this environment are struggling with is a notion of authenticity. We've built our business on mediation and on production for decades, and we're at a point now where actually what the audience and the public want is a sense of what's real. Uh, a good example of this uh, um, uh, was the relaunch last year of Sky News, where they spent many millions of pounds doing the conventional thing for a television network relaunch. New graphics, big shiny new studio, new theme tune, new anchors, very polished, and what happened was a collapse in their ratings. I don't make mention that to make the competitive point, but the reason was it was very heavily mediated. It looked mediated, it felt unreal, and it came at a point where, because of the internet and a lot of this other disruption, the audience and the public increasingly want something that feels authentic. And I think that's an enormous challenge that a lot of um, conventional news organisations and media organisations are still struggling with. To continue Roger's ice cap metaphor, on Hard Talk on BBC World today, I heard the head of the British Antarctic Survey talking about an ice flow the size of Wales breaking off. But instead of gently floating north from the Antarctic and melting as they expected, it shattered like a car windscreen into thousands of pieces. Many thousands of sites of information are shattering as well uh, as uh, this ice cap melts and trust in the big media organisations is breaking away. Finally, the third point uh, was that Roger, of course, saw media as an ethical environment, which is, of course, the theme of the book, or hoped it could recover at least an ethical heart. In a wonderful phrase, he described the media as the moral lungs of a global world, creating a climate of expectation and judgement for all of us whose views of the world beyond our own experience depends on them. Now, this is face value, of course, a call for higher standards, perhaps by self-regulation or a commitment to values, or in some cases, external regulation. And the issues are, for example, when journalists concern themselves with what images to publish and what to censor, whether to allow interviewees to revise their interviews, whether to give those maligned the right of reply, whether to con conduct undercover investigations through subterfuge or other means, and many other cases. The dignity of those reported upon should be the starting point and the bottom line that without this trust, influence, and ultimately audiences and readers would suffer. And that's, of course, a noble aspiration, and perhaps, as Daniel said, it may be demanding the impossible of us. And I can hear my news colleagues objecting. Some will say it's not their place to decide ethics, that they should be neutral in some way, or as far as they're able to be, that the public and the market can decide the ethics of it. 
that the tabloid press are the most popular, uh, that the public gets the media they deserve, even if it is a confected reality. Others will say that dealing with the subjects more mendacious and deceitful than the media's tactics in reporting with them. You cannot take spin at face value, they'll argue, and fulfill your responsibility to the public at the same time. The real problem with spin is its contempt for the public, so they argue that by dealing with it aggressively, they're acting in the public interest. Others might simply suggest that it's naive to suppose that a complicated, interconnected, dirty and muddy world will be adequately reported with a simple ethical code. Now, there is some merit in those arguments from the perspective of a practitioner, but Roger was right that the collapse of trust in the world's media, which, like global temperatures, is rising all around us, cannot be reversed without what one might call a new social contract. When I became a journalist 30 years ago, it was hardly a respectable uh, uh, profession, but it was an admired one, still feeding off the waves of the Pentagon Papers of Watergate and other triumphs. That's certainly not the case today. Journalism is no longer held in high esteem in many quarters. There is a crisis of confidence brought about by the many challenges that surround us, some of which I've spoken about. However, we should not lose sight of the essential role that freedom of the press, freedom of information, freedom of expression plays in the world. Journalism does matter. There is a direct link between these freedoms and economic and democratic development, for example. As Timothy Gartnash wrote in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago, the future of freedom depends on words prevailing over knives. Or as Article 19, the Freedom of Expression Charity puts it, freedom and expression and a free and independent media constitute crucial actors in the development process and the implementation of the Millennium Development Goals. The full enjoyment of the right to freedom of expression is the most potent force to strengthen peace and preempt conflict. It is central to achieving individual freedoms and developing democracy and plays a critical role in tackling the underlying causes of poverty and all that can lead to. We live in a world where many are prepared to take up weapons of violence and perhaps words, information, debate, freedom of expression, yes, even journalism, can play a role in defending those broader freedoms. So journalism does matter in my view, and you'll excuse me if this is a practitioner's headline not quite underpinned by academic rigour, though I think perhaps Roger's book may provide some of it. Journalism is poorly regarded by many governments and institutions and individuals, but I hope there might be a chance of re-establishing a new social contract, a commitment to training and high standards and full accountability, good editorial practice, yes, an ethical code, if you like, delivering high-quality information, a strong currency, and in return for public recognition of the value of strong journalism. That may be wishful thinking, but I do think it's an argument at the moment that really needs to be had, uh, and I very much hope that Roger's book can at least begin that. Thank you. I took a vow before coming up here tonight that I would be a quiet chair. And um, as I listen to all of the contributions, the first instinct that I have is to start arguing. <laughs> um, I'll try to be a quiet chair because I really want to be able to have more contributions and contributions from the floor. Um, before I take questions and while you're thinking about putting your hands in the air, it just seems to me that, in a way, what we've been hearing is something um, profoundly simple, that what we're talking about is not just responsibility, but responsible action. What we're talking about is not just things like media justice, media literacy. We're talking about media justice and media literacy for a purpose, for a purpose that we have to really, really, really fundamentally deal with in terms of the morality and the humanity of the world. 
And that's why we study the media. And it seems to me that we can debate all sorts of angles, but ultimately that is our mission. And I think many of you would um, want to say something about that and about what you feel Roger was trying to say. So um, I open the floor and uh, we have a microphone. Identify yourselves, please, if you want to say something. Don't be shy. Hi, Rishi Dastadar. I'm alum of Regulation in 2002. Um, there was one thing that just really struck from what everyone said, and it's, uh, I pose it as a question, which is whose morality? Um, there was a, a implicit, possibly, but there was a very strong sense that everyone up there had an agreed notion of what morality actually meant, and I'm not sure that it's as straightforward as that, and I'll, I'll pose it as an example. BBC operates under a certain way of impartiality and balance. Other end of the spectrum, Fox News says it is fair and balanced. Now, I would say that underpinning that, there are two competing notions of morality there, which is right. How do we tease those out? How do we tease out what the balance is between the two? Thank you. Uh, yes, I think it's a very important question, and I think that uh, uh, there's a passage in uh, Roger's book where he says that he speaks from a liberal tradition and from the need for universalistic principles. On the other hand, he recognizes that universalistic principles might not be agreeable to those in the name of whom he speaks. So he finds himself in a dilemma. How can you, in the name of universalism, accommodate or recognize another who rejects that universalism? So there is a paradox, and this is the type of paradox which very, as usual, he proposes, and he proposes not as a wall against which you bump, but as some sort of a challenge. But I believe there's another question behind your question, is the, and the other question is, who is the other? I think that uh, I am always afraid, since I'm French, we had a very famous man called Jacques Lacan who loved to take a common word and to put it in capitals. So you have the other, and all of a sudden it becomes the other. Okay? And the other becomes all, all, all of a sudden a very deep philosophical notion. And I think that uh, I am somehow, the book of Roger involves some sort of a critique of sociology. I mean, there's an undercurrent where this sort of a delegitimation of sociology, he almost advocates a return to philosophy or a return to moral philosophy and to start from scratch again. But I think that within this sort of rejection of sociology, it seems to me that the same way as we as Annabelle and as Roger have said, is the most dangerous of pronouns. They is also a very ambiguous pronoun, and the other is a creation which I believe I do not understand. I don't know there is the other. There are many others, and that if you're dealing with uh, the media police, then the multiplicity of other to me is essential, and this is one of my disagreements with Roger. I believe that the, uh, I mean, in a way, he has a very sublime mise en scène, which looks like a Western. Okay, it's high noon, 
I'm on one side, there's the other on the other side, but instead of fighting, I recognize his otherness. I, I am a sublime cowboy. Instead of fighting, I recognize the presence of the other. Yet, I believe this mise-en-scene is mistaken because it is two people on a deserted stage and on stages in the world, you don't have two people, you have crowds of people. You have many others, and it seems to me that the big issue to me is that the other has another, and the other of the other is not me. <laughs> we are many. And in other terms, instead of having a duo, a duet, we have at least a triangle. So you have two problems, I believe. The one you raised about, you know, in the name of whose values. And the one I'm raising is, is there the other? Um. <laughs> Perhaps I could pick up on that in a slightly, slightly more prosaic uh, uh, sense from a practitioner, which is to say that um, as, a, as a producer and a journalist in the BBC newsroom uh, 15 years ago, you would achieve impartiality by balancing a 20-second soundbite from the left with a 20-second soundbite from the right, and everyone thought that was more or less fair, and off we went, and people kind of thought, well, that's fair enough, the BBC's being impartial. There's no possibility that that could pass muster today, and we don't, you're right, just have a third other, we have many of them. And the issue of impartiality for an organization like the BBC is to try to reflect as broad a diversity of viewpoints as we reasonably can in you know, whatever context that we are broadcasting. Uh, now that may be one way that we define our, our purpose, and of course we also define it in many other ways through values of fairness and tolerance and free speech and so on. Other organizations and, and other people and other institutions will define it in entirely different ways. And I think one of the things we're all grappling with, not just media organizations or, or academics, but the public, the audience, the viewer, the listener, the reader, uh, is in this new environment of a million sources of information, all of them entitled to their own viewpoint and their own standards and their own values. How do we find what we want and what we need? And I think you know, we are all racing to catch up with the new circumstances in which we find ourselves. Another way in which we could approach this is to say that, um, yes, Roger does speak a universalist discourse of morality, uh, and he's very aware of the fact that he's speaking that discourse from the perspective of, of the Westerner, of somebody who has lived and experienced life only in the kind of prosperous zone of the West. That's a fact, and that's how it is, and in a way it only confirms the claim that we are producing discourse, moral discourse, from particular perspectives in history and uh, uh, in space and time. Having said that, however, I believe that he had acknowledged the fact that the world was divided in zones of uh, power, the powerful, the powerless, those who suffer, those who not, who don't, and that the way in which he used universalism came from a particular philosophical tradition that confronted itself with the horrors of Western thinking and with Western universalism. So both Levinas and Arendt were indeed trying to cope with the bad sides, the uh, horror sides of what uh, moral universalism could produce. In that sense, he was, so to speak, caught in that historical impossibility, but was trying to articulate a discourse that would take account of the sufferer, of the powerless, from the perspective of a more 
so to speak, humanizing a more self-aware uh, philosophical discourse of the West. Okay. Um, we have a question up at the top, and then maybe we'll take another one down on the right here. Um, just picking up on the last point, really, um, competing uh, values, competing moral moralities, and cowboys at high noon. Um, I would say this because I work for a festival called the Battle of Ideas, but I think having that battle of ideas and competing um, for that moral judgment is important. I also think that one of the ways that we do that is, um, comes down to the point about representation and what isn't represented. Um, and I wondered um, when, if the panel would agree with me when we're thinking about um, how we form our judgments about different voices and who speaks for themselves, that um, it's important uh, the best representation comes from people speaking for, for themselves. And if the panel would agree with me that the move by the government today to clamp down on Islamist groups, radical Islamist groups on campus is actually an absolute disaster for free speech and for actually engaging in that battle of ideas um, that will form our judgment. Just, just one response to that, which also cover, covers the earlier question. I think what, what, what has happened in broadcasting, in universities, in human rights organizations, is that the last decade or so has seen a, a breaking down of the line that used to exist between the high moral questions, which you refer to as you're just putting a capital letter in front of something, you know, the questions of universality, uh, questions of, of, of gender equality, questions of, of community. You know, the, the, those grand, grand questions were always there in the background, but never seemed really to impinge on, on, on term, you know, the more pragmatic day-to-day -day judgments of journalists about whether you put this story in or not, or whether the left was represented by one speaker or not. I think what has happened over the last couple of decades is, is a complete breakdown of that distinction and that the, the, grand, the grand judgments have entered into the everyday judgments. Uh, and so questions about uh, Muslim women, questions about free speech have, have come off the, the grand universal platforms that they used to be and have entered into the everyday judgments of media organizations, of human rights organizations, of universities, and I think they, they, they're, straining at, they're straining to make sense. You know, I think the, the example you gave of, of, of in the end, letting, letting the, the group it's affected itself have a privileged position, I think might work for some political cases. I think in, in other cases it's had a disastrous effect, but it's led to a, a kind of celebration of subjectivity in, in which the, you know, the only voice that counts is the subjective person, the subjective voice of, of say, the victim. And I think we, the media, along with many other organizations, have gone along with, with over-respectful attitude towards victim subjectivity. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that's your position at all. I'm saying that you know, in an organized political sense, you have to give a privileged position. But overall, appealing to subjectivity doesn't solve the moral question at all. 
I think I made two, two different points briefly. Um, I, I didn't hear today's uh, announcement, so I'm not, not clear what it was, but I'm, I'm trying to remember the um, Milton's quote from Ariopagetico, you know, whoever knew truth to suffer in a free and open fight, and that's a sort of principle that I think most of us in, in uh, journalism would uh, subscribe to. Uh, and certainly, I mean, this is something that does move from time to time according to the political environment and so on. During the, uh, the height of the Irish uh, troubles, of course, the Conservative government banned uh, Sinn Féin from the airwaves, uh, but I think uh, nobody thought it was very effective, and that's why it was uh, repealed a few years later. So I personally um, would take a lot of convincing that uh, uh, banning people from the airwaves is achieves very much at all. A separate point, I think, com coming back to some of the things that, that Stan was talking about, is that um, uh, this issue of what you leave out and why uh, is often framed, I'm not suggesting you're saying this then, but it's often framed uh, as censorship or as trying to, um, you know, push forward a particular world viewpoint for a particular reason. And actually, um, it's a lot more practical than that. It's just that you have to make a choice when space is limited, and it's as simple as that. Uh, uh, in the 10 o'clock news, uh, in 25 minutes, we have the same number of words as on one page of a broadsheet newspaper, and we're broadcasting them to an audience which, you know, on the one hand reads The Sun and The Daily Mail, and on the other hand reads The FT or The Guardian or The Telegraph, and has a whole range of viewpoints and attitudes. And trying to reconcile that universality uh, with limited space and trying to make those choices, which you have to make because, you know, you're going to run out of time after 25 minutes, forces you into those judgments. And it's not a question of suppression, which is what censorship is. It's a question of having to make choices, and some people will agree with them and some people won't. And we discuss the choices and debate them, you know, constantly uh, within every news organization and every newsroom. And, you know, those of you who are on the receiving end have to make your own decisions about whether we get it right or wrong. Um, I'd like to take a question from the gentleman down there and then right directly after him, because we were going to run out of time, uh, one from the gentleman over there, and then we'll take responses. Um, yes. Um, <clears throat> does the panel think the outside world can do anything to mitigate the situation in Russia where so many uh, journalists are being assassinated? <clears throat> Throughout this discussion, there's been a sort of assumption that uh, responsibility lies with the media and that <coughs> practitioners, journalists, uh, have the right to this sort of godlike responsibility that was referred to, where you take responsibility for my actions. And to my mind, that diminishes me. And therefore, I'm delighted at the idea of this crisis in the media and the, and the destruction of authoritative voices and the multiplicity, because that gives me back my sense of responsibility. Okay, I think that's, uh, uh, I think that's at one point, uh, Professor Cohen spoke about the importance of uh, what to think about and what is shown to you as opposed to what is not shown to you. And he stressed uh, the importance of um, uh, showing or not showing versus that of how you show. And, uh, and I believe that, uh, in fact, uh, uh, while uh, it is quite important what you show and what you don't show, it seems to me that how you show is immensely important. And I think that uh, it seems to me to be at the heart of uh, Roger's notion of a proper distance. And I believe that the proper distance is one which does not humiliate you as a viewer. It is that which leaves you free. 
that which gives you the maximum freedom in order to make your, dis your decision. And I think that uh, one thing that uh, seems to me quite important in what Roger says is that you have to avoid being too far because when you're too far, you cannot have this sort of capacity for compassion, this proximity that is part of the moral relationship. But you have not to be too close either, because if you are too close, then you miss the situation. Then you have this sort of face-to-face uh, -face co communion, and it's almost confusion with the object you're watching. So I believe that it is quite important to respect the freedom of the viewer, and that this does not prevent the responsibility, the responsibility of the media does not prevent the responsibility of the viewers. Both are uh, doing a performance and both are responsible, I believe. And I think, I think that uh, you can always, as a viewer, correct some of the discourse offered to you by the media. And this is uh, another of the themes that develops Roger, which is the issue of contrapoint. Okay? You can, you can read the counterpoint of what is being offered to you. But I think that the question is to have enough, I would say, factuality to allow the creation of a common world where your freedom can engage with other freedoms into debate. And seems, this also seems to me a responsibility of the media. So in a way, excuse me, I have be, been a bit long, but what I meant is one responsibility does not preclude another. <laughs>